Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Tonight, we are going to try to cover two psalms, because the two psalms we're going to look at are kind of a study in contrast. They appear to be written by the same person under two different circumstances, and yet sent to the same people, the sons of Korah. But let's start this evening in Romans 8. We're going to start reading a very familiar passage here from Romans 8, only because in the midst of Paul developing his theology of God's divine purpose in everything, and in demonstrating God's complete sovereignty in salvation, and also talking about us as individuals even when life gets hard, even when we're in distress, even when the troubles of life seem to overwhelm us, that we are still not separated from the love of God, he takes the time to quote from the very psalm that we're going to look at this evening. So I figure we'll start with Paul's quotation from the psalms, and then we'll go and look at the psalm itself. I'm going to start reading in Romans 8, 28, just because I like this whole section. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who were called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these also he glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also With him freely give us all things. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. And who is the one who will condemn us? Christ is he who died. Yes, rather, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who also intercedes for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, 
nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when Paul was talking about the difficulties of this life, the tribulation, the distress, the persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, even death by a sword, his conclusion is that none of those things can separate us from Christ, that even through those things we overwhelmingly conquer because Christ loved us despite those events, so we're not to let those events of life cause us to start asking, well, where is God in the midst of our troubles? Rather, he is saying that God is right there in the midst of those troubles, helping us to overcome them, to endure them. And if they kill us, we ultimately go home. So we overwhelmingly conquer. And as a demonstration that that theology is not some novelty that he just made up, he says that it is written, and he quotes from the Psalms, For thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Turn back to Psalm 44 now. Psalm 44 is not without its controversies. The first section of Psalm 44, which is described again as being for the choir director, a mascal for the sons of Korah, And the first section of it, down to the first Selah, the first think of it, the first eight verses, are all the psalmist remembering back the history of Israel and how God had delivered Israel time and time again. And through his own might, through his own power, not by their power, not by their sword, not by their armies, but by the power of God, he had delivered them into the land that he had promised them. And he had protected them throughout that. So the first part of the psalm is remembering that God did that. But the second part of the psalm is a little more difficult. The history of Israel, and we've talked about this a lot, especially as we were going through the Old Testament books, especially as we were looking at the history of Israel over the last many years. One of the hallmarks of Israel's relationship with God is that with each successive generation, They would wander further from God, and then they would find themselves in a situation where they'd cry out to God. God would faithfully deliver them. That generation seemed to be loyal to God, and then their children come along, and then their grandchildren come along, and the generations come along that don't remember what God did, and they rebel, and they chase their gods. And then God brings down the enemies on them and brings the wild animals down on them, and they go through persecution, and they go through famine and difficulty, and finally God has them cornered to the point where they will cry out to God, and then God delivers them. And then they get fat and happy, and then they forget. And then that, that's the cycle that you see over and over again throughout the Old Testament. The second half of Psalm 44 appears to be during one of the times when God has delivered them. And this is a generation of people who are on a national level loyal to God. Because there are going to be statements in this psalm that are really difficult to imagine because the psalmist is even bragging, we didn't chase after other gods. If we did, you would know it. We've been loyal to you. We've been faithful to you. 
And of course, the history of Israel is, no, you haven't been. No, you have chased your other gods. No. So this has to be during a period of time when the psalmist can rightfully say that, yes, we're being faithful to you. We're being loyal to you, except that the whole second part of the psalm is saying we are loyal, we are faithful, we are nationally following you, and you're not helping us. Why? Why aren't you helping us? You should help us. We're being faithful. We're being loyal. And we can think back to the times when you have delivered our forefathers. We're in this land because you brought us to this land and you showed your mighty arm in the past. Why aren't you doing that now? And the reason that I'm hoping to get to two psalms tonight is because later the very same author is going to deliver a psalm to the very same people after he kind of gets his mind right and he reverts to the sovereignty of God and sort of comes to the conclusion that God can do whatever he wants to do and comes to the conclusion that Paul comes to, and this is why it's so obvious that Paul is very influenced by these two psalms in the things that he wrote in Romans 8 because it goes from a transition of we're being slaughtered, we are sheep for the slaughter right now, And finally it gets to, but you're God, and you can do whatever you want to do. And even the slaughtering, and even the difficulties, and even the trials and the famines of this life don't separate us from you. This life, this vapor, these difficulties we go through are nothing compared to God's faithfulness to us. We don't get to brag about our faithfulness to him. So that's the overview of the two psalms I would like to get to this evening, which means that I really ought to start reading, don't you think? Psalm 44. For the choir director, a maskil, for the sons of Korah. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us, the work that thou didst in their days, in the days of old, Thou with thine own hand didst drive out the nations. You drove out the Gentiles, apparently out of the land that we are now occupying. And then thou didst plant them, our fathers, the ones who told us about how they ended up in this land. And then thou didst plant them, but thou didst afflict the people, and you did spread them abroad. One of the more fascinating phrases that you find in Genesis when God is explaining to Abraham that his descendants are going to go into a land where they're not known and they're going to serve them there for 400 years and then God says, and I'm going to take them out with a mighty hand and bring them back to this very land. One of the things that God explains about that 400-year gap is because the sinfulness of the Amorites is not yet full. And so God is going to give them 400 years to fill up their transgressions against God. And then God's going to bring in Israel to conquer them and take their land when it is appropriately time for that to happen. And so that seems to be what he's talking about here. That our forefathers have told us how they ended up in the land and how you drove out the nations before them. And then you planted them here and then you afflicted those people. And you sent them abroad. You scattered them out. 
for by their own sword they did not possess this land, and their own arm did not save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your presence, for you did favor them. You had grace on them. You were kind to them. The reason they're in this land right now is because you favored them and were gracious to them. You fought for them. You drove out the people before them. You planted them in this land. And so he's admitting and praising and worshiping God for the fact that God has given them this land of milk and honey and driven their enemies out. Therefore, in verse 4, he could say, you are my king, O God. So command victories for Jacob. That's for Israel, for the 12 collective tribes over which David was ruling. Give victories to Jacob. Through thee, we will push back our adversaries. Through thy name, we will trample down those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor will my sword save me. But thou hast saved us from our adversaries, and thou hast put to shame those who hate us. So in God, we have boasted all day long. That's where our praise is. We're boasting in God, not in our own power, not in our own armies, not in our own bows and our own swords. We're boasting in our God all the time, all day long. And we will give thanks to your name forever. So it sounds like he's making a pretty rock-solid case here. We trust you, God. We're in this land because of you. You've been kind and gracious to us. You push back our adversaries. The people who ever tried to rise up against us, you're the one that trampled them down and gave us the ability to fight against them. And we're going to give thanks to your name forever. Selah, think about that. If that psalm had stopped right there, you'd go, well done. Good. What a good psalm by the psalmist. What a positive-sounding psalm. But then starting at verse 9, you hear him beginning to lay out his complaint against God, which is, look, I know what you've done in the past. Our forefathers have told us what you've done. I know you can do it. Why aren't you doing it? Apparently, they're in peril at this moment. Verse 9, and yet... Despite all that, and yet you have rejected us and brought us to dishonor, and you do not go out with our armies. We're getting beat up all the time. Our adversaries are conquering us constantly. Now, we know what you've done in the past. We know that you can do it. I've just gotten done praying that you would give victories to Jacob that you would command victories to Jacob. And yet, you have rejected us, and you've brought us down to dishonor, and you don't go out with our armies, and thou dost cause us to turn back from the adversary. We're not conquering our adversaries. We're running away from our adversaries. And those who hate us have taken a spoil for themselves. And you do give us as sheep to be eaten, and you have scattered us among the nations. Thou dost sell your people cheaply. 
and you have not profited by their sale. It's an interesting phrase. You've, you've given us over to these nations. These nations are conquering us. They're taking our goods. They're despoiling us. And so it's like you're selling us, but you're not even selling us for any great profit. You're just giving us away. That seems counterintuitive. And we're your people. And you sell your people cheaply. And you haven't profited from that sale. Thou dost make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and a derision to those around us. The nations around us are mocking us, making fun of us. Because despite the armies that we should be able to conquer, they're conquering us. They're taking our wealth. They're taking our food. They're taking our women. They're taking our livestock. And so, of course, the surrounding nations that don't believe in Yahweh would be saying, where is your God? How come your God's not fighting for you? Why is it so easy to conquer you? And so now we are just a scoffing and a derision to those around you. Do you hear the complaint? It starts with, I know you can do it. You've done it in the past. You're the strength and the power that is the reason we're in this land. Why aren't you doing it now? We're getting beat up. It's like we're just sheep to be eaten. Thou dost make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and a derision to those around us. Thou dost make us a byword among the nation. That means that people are gossiping about us, talking about us behind our backs. You've made us a laughing stock among the peoples. All day long, my dishonor is before me, and my humiliation has overwhelmed me because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles, because of the presence of the enemy and the avenger. And all this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten thee. Okay, now at this point, he has described his situation. We're getting beat up everywhere we go. Our armies are not winning. People are taking all our stuff. People are making fun of us and mocking us. We're a laughing stock everywhere. And now the argument's going to be, and yet we have been really good to you. And this is the part that no matter how much I read it or how many commentaries I read about it, I struggle with because some of these things that the psalmist says just feel like they can't be completely true because we know the history of Israel. And so this kind of reads like a bit of desperation on the part of the psalmist trying to talk God into doing the things that he knows God can do. It's like, hey, we've done our part. Where are you in the midst of all this? And yet, all this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you. And we have not dealt falsely with your covenant. Do you think that's true? But we have not dealt falsely with your covenant. Really, you've kept the Ten Commandments perfectly? Really, you've, you've kept all the terms of the covenant perfectly? Really? And yet I think he's saying, we're, we're doing our best down here, God. And you seem to have abandoned us. Verse 18, our heart has not turned back. And our steps have not deviated from your way. And yet you have crushed us in the place of jackals. 
and you have covered us with the shadow of death. If that phrase sounds familiar, Psalm 23, David says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, impending death, I can see death right there around the corner. David says, I don't worry about that because I know you. Your rod and your staff comforts me. Here the psalmist is saying, I am in a place where I've just been crushed and I feel like I'm covered by the shadow of death. Death is all around me. Death is impending. I'm going to be killed. My enemies are going to get me. And look at me. I'm the one who hasn't dealt falsely with your covenant. In fact, we nationally have not turned our hearts against you. Our steps have not deviated from your way. And yet you keep crushing us. And you could help us. You helped our fathers. Why aren't you helping us? Verse 20. If we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hand to a strange God, would not God find this out? (laughs) It's such an odd thing to say. Look, if we had committed adultery, you would know it. And we're arguing that we haven't committed any kind of idolatry against you. And we know in your sovereignty that had we committed some idolatry against you, you would know it. Therefore, our hands are clean before you. Why aren't you helping us? If we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, Would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. But, and now here's the quote that Paul picked up. But for thy sake, we are killed all day long. And we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And that's interesting because in the context that the psalmist puts it, he's admitting it. He's admitting defeat. He is surrounded by the shadow of death, and therefore he says, you know what, we're sheep for the slaughter. There's nothing we can do about it, and he's actually charging God with that. He's actually saying to God, you could help us, and yet you're not. Why have you abandoned us? Why have you left us to our enemies? We're just sheep for the slaughter. Like by saying that, he could say to God, don't you care? We're your people. Paul picks it up in Romans 8 and turns it on its head and says, yes, we are. We are sheep for the slaughter. Yeah, we don't belong in this world. Yes, the world is going to reject us, and yes, this life is going to be hard. And despite the fact that this life is hard, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So where the psalmist is saying it is a complaint, Paul is saying it as a positive affirmation that nothing can separate us from the love of God. It's an interesting twist of perspectives between the psalmist and between Paul. For your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And so in verse 23, he says, come on, God. Arouse yourself, wake up, pay attention, as if God dozed off or something. Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake, do not reject us forever. 
Paul picks up the exact same phraseology of we're killed all the day long and considered as sheep for the slaughter and says that we are never separated from God. The psalmist takes the circumstances of life as a demonstration that they are separated from God. Paul is reassuring us that the circumstances of life cannot separate us from God. Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul has sunk down into the dust. I mean, like the lowest level of depression. We're giving up. We're recognizing this veil of death that is around us. We recognize ourselves as being sheep that are being slaughtered and eaten. Our soul has sunk down into the dust and our body clings to the earth. We're done for. It's over. Verse 26 closes the psalm with this plea. Rise up. Be our help. And redeem us for the sake of of your loving kindness. So we began the psalm by saying, it is your grace, it is your favor, that is the reason that you brought our forefathers into this land and gave them victory over their enemies. You did that because of your favor, because of your loving kindness. Now you have put us in these very, very dire circumstances. You don't seem to be fighting for us. So all we can do is pray to you that you will be our help, that you will redeem us, and that you won't do it for our sake. Do it for the sake of your loving kindness, which almost shows that by the end of the psalm, he realized that all his pleading about how they had not removed themselves or chased after any strange gods, how they had not forgotten the name of God, All of those pleas where they were saying, look, God, we're doing pretty good. It's almost like he realizes that cannot be the grounds on which God is going to preserve us. Because I already admitted, I already recognized that God did not bring us into this land or save us or preserve us in the first place because of our deeds. He didn't do it by our sword, by our armies, by our bows. He did it by his favor, by his strength, by his power. Therefore, the only thing I've got to plea before God is the grace of God. The only thing I've got to plea is the loving kindness of God. That's the only way that God is going to help us. That's the only way God is going to save us. I think we could apply that to the very circumstance we find ourselves in right now. I don't think any of us would be brave enough to say, look, God, I've been good. I'm doing great. Jeff, you're going to go with that one? I'm doing good. No, of course not. All we can plead is the very thing that the psalmist wraps up with, which is rise up, be our help, and redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. It sure took the psalmist a long time to get there. It sure did, but that's why I want to get to the next psalm. Next week, we'll look at Psalm 45, which is a psalm about the king's marriage and isn't contextually anything like what we're reading here in Psalm 44. But look at Psalm 46, which is for the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah. 
apparently same psalmist writing to the exact same people. It's almost like he got his mind right and said, let me give you this as well. Because this is overwhelming and beautiful. This psalm is set to an alamoth, and then it says it is a song. The word alamoth, the best bet of an interpretation of alamoth is virgins or young women. So apparently this is meant for the sopranos, for the women that can sing high. That's apparently what an alamoth is. There is nothing in this psalm that is self-glorifying. At no point in this psalm does the psalmist start saying, but I'm doing good, and therefore, God, you need to help me. Instead, this entire psalm is about the goodness of God, and remarkably, it becomes prophetic and follows the exact same sequence that we've been seeing on Sunday mornings out of Revelation 19 and 20. So that's another reason I wanted to get to this psalm tonight, because it just happens to fit perfectly with what we're reading on Sunday mornings. Tom, if you would, look up Revelation 22, the very first verse. We'll get to it in just a moment. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and our strength. Our strength is not in ourselves or our ability, or our bow, or our sword. God in his loving kindness and by his strength is the only place that we find refuge. That is a far cry from what he was writing back in his pleas of Psalm 44. God is our refuge and our strength and a very present help in the time of trouble. A minute ago, he was saying, where are you, God? I said a minute ago, these could have been years apart for all we know. But before it was like, where are you, God? We're in trouble. Help us. Here he says, God is a very present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. A minute ago, he was nothing but fearful. Therefore, we will not fear Though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, in other words, if volcanoes blow up, we're still going to trust you. He was trying to think of the worst circumstances that the planet could go through. And yet he said, I'm going to have confidence in God because he is our very present help in all these times of trouble. And then he says, Selah, stop and think about that. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. What a very prophetic thing to say. Here's what John writes in Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And where is that happening? New Jerusalem, the city of God. Remarkably, the psalmist, looking far forward to the security that he has in God, regardless of the circumstances of this planet, even if the earth should completely be changed, 
if mountains fall into the heart of the sea, if volcanoes are going off and there's earthquakes everywhere and the waters are roaring and foaming, even if the world is shaking, rocking, and reeling, nevertheless, God is our very present help because here's what he knows. There's this river, this peaceful river, this sustaining river that streams from the throne of God and makes glad the city of God, the holy dwelling place of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, and she will not be moved. When we get to Revelation 21 and 22 in the coming weeks, that's what we're going to read, is that God is with his people. He is there in the midst with them, so much so that there's no sun You don't need the sun because the light of God is going to light the city of God. God is in the midst of her, and she will not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. Sound familiar? Sound like Psalm 2? Why do the nations rage? The nations made an uproar, and the kingdoms fell down. They tottered because he raised his voice and the earth melted. Sounds like Peter talking about the great conflagration to come, that the elements of this world are going to be burned up with a fervent heat. So this is a time of trouble that's coming on the earth that the Lord himself, when he raises his voice, is going to melt away this earth in order to make a new heavens and a new earth. Verse 7 The Lord of hosts is with us. Yahweh Sabaoth is with us. And the God of Jacob is our protection. He is our stronghold. He is our strong rock to protect us. And again, Selah, again, think of that. Now, what just happened to this guy? Okay, now, granted, we don't know the period of time between Psalm 44 and Psalm 46, but it's apparently the same psalmist sending psalms to the same group of people to be performed in the temple, and he has gone from, woe is me, and we are in real trouble, and where are you, God, all the way to the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, is our very present help And he is the rock of our defense. He is our stronghold. He is the place where we are going to hide. What changed? Well, he got his mind right. And he stopped looking at his circumstances. And he looked at who God is. And that is such a valuable lesson to every one of us. You can look at the circumstances of the world. And I have defined faith over and over again through the years as standing on the word of God and reckoning it as more sure, more certain than your circumstances. Because the circumstances of life will cause you to start asking things like, where's God in all this? Why isn't God judging yet? Why is this stuff going on right now in the world? Where is God? Doesn't he care? Won't he defend us? Why doesn't he stand up for us? Why doesn't he stand up for his church? Paul says we're sheep for the slaughter. And yet, despite that, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. If that's for me, I'm busy. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. 
Think about that. Come, behold the works of the Lord. He began Psalm 44 by saying, Our forefathers told us about your works. We know all about what you did in protecting them, in delivering them, in bringing them out of Egypt, in planting them in this land, in scattering the people that were already here in the land. We know your mighty works. And once again, come behold the works of the Lord, because he has wrought desolations in the earth. This is the same God who protects people, who delivers people, who scatters people, who plants people. This is the same God who is going to burn up the planet and who is going to demonstrate his power in the destruction and the desolation that he's going to bring to earth. Very, very eschatological language here in this psalm. And yet it's the same powerful Yahweh. It's the same Lord of hosts who protects and who defends and who brings desolations to the earth. But then, after three verses of the kingdoms, the nations are in an uproar, kingdoms are being toppled, the earth is being melted, and yet he is our stronghold, and his mighty works are going to result in the desolations of the earth. The next thing he says in verse 9 is, He makes wars to cease, and he makes them cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two, and he burns the chariots with fire. The same God who brings desolations and troubles and problems and scatters people is the same God who's ultimately going to bring peace on the earth when he finally has those rivers of life flowing from the throne of God in the city of God. Does that all sound familiar? This is very Revelation-y language, if Revelation-y is a word. If not, it is now. I just used it. Use it in a sentence later. That God makes wars to cease all the way to the ends of the earth. And he breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two, And he burns the chariots with fire. The NASB renders verse 10 as cease striving and know that I am God. Striving is added by the translators. It is a single Hebrew word that just means stop it. Be still. Be quiet. I think that's the way the King James renders it. Be still and know that I am God. So no amount of effort on your part is going to get it done. No amount of pleading to God, reckoning with God, or bargaining with God is going to get it done. It has to be because of his favor. It has to be because of his grace. It has to be because of his sovereign decision. After all, he's the God who is going to utterly destroy nations and utterly destroy the planet. He's the one who is going to stop all wars on the planet everywhere He's the one who is going to break the bow and cut the spear in two and burn the chariots. So stop thinking it's up to you. Just stop it and know that I am God. What good advice. Mm -hmm. Cease your striving. Cease your bargaining with God. And know that he's God and he's going to do whatever he wants to do. I mean, after all, 
When the nations asked, where is your God? David's answer was, our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. And you don't get to bargain with a God like that. He's going to do whatever he wants to do regardless. So as I keep saying, take sides against yourself and take sides with God. And worship him and bless him and praise him and cease striving against him. Just stop and know that I am God. And I will be exalted among the goy. I will be exalted among the Gentiles. I will be exalted in the earth. Sounds very revelation-y, doesn't it? That's twice tonight I've used that word. (laughs) And notice that it is the same sequence again. Trouble, earthly upheaval, and then a kingdom when all the other kingdoms are toppled, and then a time of peace, and God establishing the new Jerusalem, and there's no more war, and there is a river of life flowing from the throne of God, the psalmist sees the same events that John sees in Revelation. I will be exalted among the nations, and I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. In Psalm 44, he was saying, come on, do these works for Jacob. Come on, protect Jacob. Now here he is saying, you are the God of Jacob. And you are the only place we have to hide. (coughs) Because you're the one that's in charge of everything. You're the Lord of hosts. And the Lord of hosts is with us. And the God of Jacob is our stronghold. For the third time in this short psalm, he says, think about that. So my suggestion would be, think about that. Paul picks up the language of Psalm 44 in order to say, yes, in this world, you're going to have a hard time. You're going to have tribulations and distresses. Yes, in this lifetime, it's going to be tough. But that does not separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. The psalmist who started out with, God, we know what you've done in the past. Our forefathers have told us what you've done in the past. Why aren't you helping us right now? Our current situation looks bad. Ends up saying, you know what? You're God. You're going to do whatever you're going to do. And even if we are sheep for the slaughter, nevertheless, you are the Lord of hosts. And you're our refuge. You're the only place we have to hide. Therefore, we're going to trust in you regardless of what happens to us in this lifetime. It's very similar to what we read in Job, though he slay me. Yet I'll trust him. This is a constant message in the Bible. Whether it's the psalmist, whether it's Job, whether it's Paul, the message over and over again is don't look at your circumstances. Look to God. He's your hiding place. And this life is a vapor. It'll be gone soon enough. And then you're going to go to that city of great joy. The end makes all the trouble in between completely worth it. Which is why Paul would say, that he doesn't consider the troubles of this life comparable to the glory that lays before us. And if you keep that in mind, 
then you have the strength to get through the troubles of this life. Make sense? Sure Any questions about those two psalms? I think that's just such a great message. Just trust God regardless. I was somewhat surprised to catch just a, a small portion of uh, a sermon by Chuck Swindoll, who I don't think anyone would count as a defender of the doctrines of grace. Right. Nonetheless, he was talking about what knowing God does for us. And he made this statement. He said, there are way too many Christians who think that God is sitting up there on the edge of heaven saying, oh no, yeah. I wasn't expecting that. What, what do I do now? Help! And, <laughs> and he did so well because that's exactly what any thought along those lines leads to. Right. Now if he went far enough to say that the God who is sovereign over every instance of our life, yeah. including our redemption, we'd be better friends. <laughs> but nonetheless, you know, you saying, you know God, you know the one who is in charge of everything since you were saved, apparently. And really, how often have we seen that message throughout the Bible? Oh, yeah. It just keeps coming up again and again and again. Even guys like Chuck Swindoll can't help but bump into it every once in a while because it's just there. And the fact that the psalmist repeatedly calls him Yahweh Sabaoth, he is the Lord of hosts, he's in charge of the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. If he's in charge of everyone and everything, trust him. Anything else? All right, then. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.